All right, so this is week eight. Um, we just have this week and then two more, and then we'll take our holiday winter break. So we're coming close to the end of the section. So the goal is to get through Moses uh, before uh, before we take our break. Then we'll pick it up with David in the spring. So tonight we're going to be starting to talk about Moses. So let me pray, and then we will look at our scripture. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this group that you gathered together, Lord God, where we can uh, just search the scriptures, Lord, and seek to discern um, what you have there for us, Lord God. We know that all of scripture is breathed out by your Holy Spirit and that all of it is indeed profitable. So, Lord, I pray that you would please help us to mine all that is there for our good, Lord, that we would live out our lives more faithfully before you, that we would understand better who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be, and Lord, that we would be more and more uh, just cognizant of the God whom we serve, Lord, and how to worship you rightly, that we would be filled with thankfulness and love. Lord, I pray that you would please bless this evening and let it be a fruitful time of teaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so obviously, um, you know, it goes without saying, a study like this, you can't cover everything. And as much as we'd love to, you know, do a whole look at the entire Old Testament, um, it's not realistic. Uh, so, you know, we, we left off with Abraham last week, and now we're skipping a whole lot with Isaac and Jacob and, or, uh, yeah, Jacob and Joseph and all of that. And we're picking it up with Moses. So... Most of you guys, all of you guys, I'm certain are familiar with, um, you know, what happens in the 400 years between Abraham and Moses. A, uh, Abraham's descendants end up in Egypt. They live and multiply in Egypt for generations until they become so numerous that the Egyptian pharaoh is threatened by this population of Hebrews that he begins to ex uh, enslave them and then seeks to exterminate them to actually cut off the bloodline of Abraham's offspring by killing all the male babies. And so that's where we're going to pick it up tonight. So Abraham's offspring is in slavery. They've been in slavery for quite some time, and they're facing the danger of a pharaoh who is bent on their destruction. And so I'm going to read tonight Exodus 3, but we're going to be flipping to several places in Exodus. And, you know, again, we're going to spend three weeks looking at Moses. And there's, uh, again, obviously so much here that deserves our attention. So we're going to be jumping around a little bit. Uh, but if you guys would turn to Exodus 3, we're going to read through that chapter. Now Moses was keeping flock and his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God said to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, 
for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the, the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and, and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the land of the affliction to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give to the people... Give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. <clears throat> so as I mentioned, um, you have all this background, this coming on the heels of a lot of history of Abraham's descendants, and it's important for us to understand, and I think part of the you know, really great blessing of covenant theology and biblical theology is that it puts scripture in its proper context, and it reminds us that all of this doesn't just come out of nowhere. The Mosaic covenant doesn't come out of nowhere, but it, is, it has a very real historical context. And so we mentioned the, slave, the enslavement of the people in Israel and uh, you know, what they were suffering at the hands of the Egyptians. But remember, back in Genesis chapter 15, when God made his covenant with Abraham, he said in that covenant that Abraham's descendants 
would be in exile for 400 years, that they would be afflicted in a foreign land, and then God would come and deliver them with a mighty hand. And so now that has all taken place, and the time has now come to, for God to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham and make his offspring into a great nation. So it's important for us to remember that the Abrahamic covenant is the background. It is the context of the Mosaic covenant. Um, and, and really, the whole system that God set up through Moses, with you know Exodus through Deuteronomy, is you know God setting up this nation, this system through Moses, and all of that. It really does flow out from what God had already begun to do with Abraham 400 years earlier. And you get this from the text that we read. And you know, even if you look at the very end of chapter 2, verse 24, um, God heard the groaning of the people, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And you guys notice multiple times, three or four times, in that chapter that we read, when God is calling Moses, he refers to, you know, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He refers to the covenant that he made with Abraham, the land that he promised to Abraham. Um, all of that is explicitly in the background of what God is doing. The reason why God is raising up Moses and sending Moses to deliver the people is because of the covenant that he had already made with Abraham. And it's really, you know, the part of the reason why God is saying to Moses, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is establishing um, the Israelites' covenantal right to the land of Canaan by rooting it back in the promises that he had already made to Abraham. And so even when Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, the God of the Hebrews is telling you to let my people go so that they may worship me. He's speaking on the authority of God's covenant with Abraham, that God had said, this is his special people. He has this land set aside for them. And Pharaoh, you must let them go and worship him. So that's all in the background here. And because this arrangement with Moses grows out of God's covenant with Abraham, it shares the same characteristics. And if you remember last week, we talked about uh, the Mosaic Covenant and the fact that uh, it has prominent features of both grace and of works. And you see the exact same thing with Moses. And so it's important for us to see that continuity because like I mentioned last week, if we are just kind of taking Moses with no background, no context, no historical precedent, we're going to talk a little bit later about how prominent the law is in Moses. I mean, Moses is the law. Um, and it's easy for us to kind of look at, you know, the first five books of the Bible, especially Exodus through Deuteronomy, and just see this elaborate legal works system. Uh, and for us to kind of disconnect that from the grace uh, that God has to Abraham and to his descendants. So keep in mind both these principles of grace and works. And uh, the first thing to look at when we're talking about grace, especially 
look at the deliverance from Egypt, the actual Exodus itself. That's the you know really uh, you know glorious prominent feature of grace in the Mosaic Covenant. So again, thinking back to Genesis 15, that God he uh, participates in that oath-taking ceremony where the animals are split in half. God passes through the animal carcasses, swears. Uh, an oath, an oath of curse on himself if he does not fulfill all of his promises. And one of the promises, like I mentioned earlier, was that deliverance of Abraham's descendants out of the land of affliction and bringing them into the promised land of Canaan. And so the fact that that promise is made in that context of God entering into this covenant and promising by his grace alone that he was going to do all of these things. It reminds us that there was no merit that the Israelites had that earned them their ticket out of Egypt, that this generation of Israelites in the 400th year of their exile in Egypt was no different from any previous generation that had been in Egypt this generation was no more righteous, no more worthy. Uh, they, they, had, they did not deserve to be the generation that left the land of affliction. But God's free grace and according to his providential timing and because of his promise to Abraham uh, delivers this people based solely on that grace, not at all based on works. And so... It's part of like we talked about last week, God's gracious obligations to the corporate body of Abraham's offspring. Remember we talked last week about how the promises of the covenant are guaranteed by God's grace to the, the people of Israel as a whole, but individually the enjoyment of the blessings are based largely on works and on obedience. And so this is part the Exodus itself. Uh, the deliverance of the people from Egypt is a part of that. It's God's obligation to the people of Israel as a whole. And you see this, if you guys turn over to Exodus chapter 20, um, this is right before God uh, delivers the Ten Commandments to the people uh, of Israel on Mount Sinai. Exodus 20 verse 2, God says, I am the Lord, you God, the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so before God begins to give the commandments, he declares what he has already done by his free grace. That I am the Lord. I have delivered you. I have saved you. I have brought you out of this land of slavery. And I'm bringing you into this land of promise. And that's before he gives the Israelites one single commandment. Uh, out of his, you know, out of the law. And so the fact that God is declaring his free grace before he gives the covenant law reminds us of the way everything happened with Abraham. Because remember with Abraham, God made the promise, he made the covenant when he passed through those animal carcasses before he gave Abraham the commandment to be circumcised and to circumcise his children. And we know from last week from Paul, Paul saw that as extremely important, that the grace of God comes before the call to obedience. And the Exodus especially, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a couple of weeks, but the actual Exodus event is, uh, is itself a type 
that point forward to the way that we are saved. And really, this is in the whole of the Old Testament. The Exodus is the most clear picture of our salvation, right? Israel in bondage, in slavery, hopelessly uh, under the thumb of the Egyptians. And it's only by God's free grace and his extraordinary power that they are delivered to his glory in the same way we are enslaved to our sin, we are utterly lost, hopeless. It's only God by his grace and his supernatural work that we are delivered from that bondage to freedom from sin in Christ, freedom to worship God. So um, the that deliverance of Israel from Egypt is an extremely clear and bright picture of God's grace in the Mosaic Covenant. But then there is also um, the the works element. You guys have any questions or anything thus far? So you have God's free grace on the one side, but as it was with Abraham, so it is with Moses. So just as after God promised Abraham these gifts of grace, he commanded him saying, you must walk before me and be blameless and you must be circumcised or else you are going to be cut off from these blessings. If anyone fails to keep this law, they are cut off from the blessings. And so uh, the same thing is the reality here with Moses uh, to enjoy and maintain the you know, physical blessings of the covenant the Israelites are called to obedience to the covenant law. So if you're still over at Exodus 20, just look back at chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. And here's what God says uh, to the Israelites. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So you have it very explicitly there. And again, this is one of the things that some covenant theologians and covenant systems that try to fit Moses and say that Moses is just another stage in God's new covenant of grace in Christ, that this is really a covenant of total free grace. It's just not there in the text. If we just let the text speak for itself, it's very clear what God is saying. Yes, he has delivered Israel freely. He's brought them out of their, uh, their slavery, but he has those key words in there. Therefore, referring back to what he did for them, the free grace with which he delivered them. So that's the, 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 the reasoning behind their obedience. And then he has that key word, if you will obey my commandments, then you will have these blessings. So God, it's the same formula we saw with Abraham. On the one side, God guarantees that the offspring of Abraham would have the land of Canaan, would have a lot of offspring, would be ruled by kings of their own uh, people, and would bring forth the great blessing to the nations from them. All that's guaranteed by grace. But on the other side, the individuals who are in the covenant must obey the covenant law or else they are cut off from the promises, just like we see later in Exodus um, when that first generation is not allowed into the promised land. They're cut off from the physical promises because of their unfaithfulness to 
the covenant law. But one thing also to keep in mind, and this kind of more as a side note, even the demand for Israel's obedience, coupled with the promise of blessing that's going to flow from that, that in itself illustrates the grace of God. Because if you guys remember, I've mentioned this throughout the class, that every single creature of God is obligated to obey his full law just because we're creatures. And we have no right to require God pay us back in any way, right? We keep his whole law and we just say, we've only done what is our duty. We are unworthy servants. He's the creator. We are the creature. We must obey him. It is an act of grace that God says specifically to the descendants of Abraham, if you obey my law, if you do what everyone's supposed to be doing anyway, I'm going to bless you. That's grace. Um, it is, you know, God is not obligated to enter into covenant relationships with any of his creatures. God is not obligated to tie himself to us in that way. We have to obey him. We expect nothing back. And even uh, verse 6 of chapter 19 that we just read, when God mentions, he says that you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, but you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What God is saying when he says all the earth is mine is that everybody on earth is required to obey me, but I'm promising you to have this special status as uh, a kingdom of priests to be in covenant with me. And even the plagues in Egypt were a demonstration that all people were to obey God's commands. When God said to Pharaoh, you let my people go, and Pharaoh said, who's God that I should listen to him? God showed him who he was by sending those ten plagues and saying that, no, this God is not only God over the Hebrews, he is God over the entire earth. And all the earth is required to obey him, whether they're promised a reward for that obedience or not. Does that all make sense? Does that all follow? Great. Um, also then turn over real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 30 because that makes it just even more clear, just in case there was any doubt that the continuation in the promised land and remaining uh, of people who are blessed you know, to receive and enjoy the blessings that are promised, it is dependent on obedience to the law. The works are a part of this covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 30, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 20. So God says through Moses, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land of the in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. 
So you see there just very clearly spelled out. You can't get around that. Enjoyment of the blessings, continuation in the land, enjoying the promises that God made to Abraham depend on that obedience to the law. It highlights the importance of um, the of works in this covenant arrangement. He says, spells it out. If you will obey, then you're going to enjoy these blessings. And what are the blessings? They're the exact same blessings that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. I'll multiply your offspring. You'll be blessed in the land of Canaan. Um, He doesn't mention there the promised blessing to the nations that would come, but that's included elsewhere. The promises, the works, all of it is just an outflow from the Abrahamic covenant. And so essentially... The Mosaic Covenant, yes, we you know we take it separately in our covenant theology, we understand it on its own terms, but really what it is is just the next stage of progression in the Abrahamic Covenant. I mentioned this, I think, a couple of weeks ago, that Abraham, Moses, and David, there's three different covenant ceremonies, and there's kind of different uh, different elements that are highlighted in each covenant, but really those three you take them together as a block, that is the old covenant and that governs the kingdom of Israel. And so you don't find any essential differences between Abraham, Moses, and David and the covenants that God made uh, with all three of them. And so, again, we just mentioned the promises of the Mosaic covenant are the same as they are to Abraham. The, the precepts of the covenant fundamentally are the same. Remember, God said to Abraham, two commandments, walk before me and be blameless and be circumcised. Those, as we're going to talk about in just a minute, um, are fleshed out and expanded to the articulation of the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, that's walk before me and be blameless. And then all the ceremonial law, the dietary laws and all the rest, that flows out of circumcision. That's positive law that distinguishes Israel from the rest of the nations. So the precepts of the covenant are the same. The sanctions in the covenant are the same. Uh, We saw it in that Deuteronomy passage. If you don't do this, then you're going to be cut off from the blessings. You will perish. They're going to be cast out of the land. You're not going to uh, continue to multiply your offspring. The consequences of breaking the covenant is disinheritance from the promises. Um, And again, we see that. Later on in Israel's history, they're disinherited because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant. Um, And even federal headship. So we talked last week about how Abraham is the federal head in the Abrahamic covenant. So the people who are included in the covenant are those who are born of the natural offspring of Abraham. They're Abraham's natural descendants. And then those who would willingly come in, undergo circumcision and bind themselves to the covenant. So, yes, Abraham remains the federal head of the covenant. All in his bloodline are automatically in the covenant. However, the covenant with Moses um, sets up another arrangement. So the big thing to keep in mind with Moses and the reason why we have all these books of law and customs and all the rest, think about really like Exodus 20 through the end of Deuteronomy is basically you know, like a charter or a constitution for the nation of Israel. The, so much of Moses is taking 
Abraham's offspring from being this sojourning ethnic group to being an actual nation with land and borders and, you know, and all that comes along with that. And so in Moses, it sets up um, not just the federal head that brings each individual into, a, into the covenant, but a, the anticipation of a corporate federal head for Israel as a, a national body. And that's set up and spelled out in the law uh, regarding kings. And we don't get a federal head over the nation of Israel until we get to David. And, you know, really, uh, when, you know, if you look at the book of Judges, there's just the, that whole book is basically asking the question, who's the king? Who's the head of Israel? And it's showing and you know, demonstrating historically all the kind of chaos that ensues when you don't have that unified corporate federal head. So being in the covenant, you're connected to Abraham, you're born into it, but nationally the king would be the federal head of that people as a corporate body. Does that make sense? And we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that when we talk about David. But Moses sets it up and anticipates that. Um, so again, essentially, it, it is just an, a, a further progression of the Abrahamic covenant. However, it does shed new light. It further reveals the mystery of Christ. In fact, Moses just adds a huge chunk into the mystery of Christ. And we're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks. Um, but the covenant with Moses, even though it's not essentially different from the covenant with Abraham, it does highlight different elements. And there are really two main elements in the covenant with Moses that are uniquely and specifically highlighted. And the first one, there's a real emphasis on the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 17, when he said that I will be your God, I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. And we talked last week about how that was a promise that God was going to dwell among Abraham's offspring in a unique way and in a way that was reminiscent of the way that God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that this kingdom of Israel was going to be not just any kingdom, but it was going to be a temple kingdom, a dwelling place of God. And that's mentioned in Genesis 17. And then kind of throughout the rest of Genesis, you see, you know, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph building altars. And that's supposed to be a, you know, that signifies the presence of God in a place. But you don't have what's introduced in Exodus, which is the sustained, continual and actual physical manifestation of God's presence among the people. So if you turn over to Exodus chapter 6, you, you start to get this. Exodus 6 is um, setting up the conflict between Moses and Pharaoh. It's right before um, you know the, the real showdown begins. And through Moses, God says to the people in Exodus 6 verse 7, he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so you have that promise of God where he says, I'm going to take you to be my people and I will be your God. And even that you know, language of you know, 
taking them. That is the language of marriage, right? And, you know, Israel is portrayed as God's bride, later portrayed as God's unfaithful bride. But it's that there's that intimacy that's intrinsic there. I'm going to take you as my own people and I will be your God. So there's that promise that there's a special relationship between God and the offspring of Abraham and a special manifestation of his presence among them. And then if you just flip over a few pages to Exodus 13, this is um, after the Passover and just before Israel comes to the Red Sea. Exodus 13 verses 21 and 22, we're told that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And so here's that manifestation. There's actually a visible, literal presence of God with the people of Israel, leading them um, you know, in, in that, uh, again, a visible manifestation and a sustained presence where it says that he did not depart from them again. This is unique. This reminds us, should bring our minds back to the Garden of Eden when God's presence was um, was intimately experienced by Adam and Eve. You haven't had anything like this since then. Now, this isn't the same as the Garden of Eden because the fall has happened. There's still alienation, but this is absolutely unique. And we get kind of a deeper picture of this uniqueness if you guys would turn um if you guys would turn over to exodus 33 i mentioned last week a little bit about the golden calf incident and how you know the people almost immediately after receiving the law they build the golden calf and god threatens saying that i'm going to wipe out the entire nation except for moses basically god's threat is that i'm going to rewind 400 years of history and i'm going to start back essentially from scratch with moses um moses intercedes god holds back his hand but still there's a lot of fallout from this incident with the golden calf and in exodus 33 verses 3 and 4 god says go up to a land flowing with milk and honey but i will not go up among you lest i consume you on the way for you are stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And then uh, go down to verse 13. Moses now once again interceding to God on behalf of the people. And Moses says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And then God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. So what's going on here is that God 
So Moses intercedes for the people with the, with the golden calf. And God says, okay, I will bring you into the land, but my presence is not going to go up with you. So the promise that God made that I'm going to be with you, actually literally with you as your God, God is saying, no, because of your sin, I am not going to go up with you. And Moses intercedes and Moses says that, you know, it's, it says the people mourned. It says that when God made this decree that this was a disastrous word from God, even though they were still getting the land, that God wasn't going with them into the land. And so Moses intercedes and says to God that the whole per he said, if you don't go with us, why bother bringing us in at all? The whole purpose of us being a nation is that we are set apart because you are with us. You are our God. You're among us and you're in our presence. That's the very thing that made the people of Israel distinct was that God's presence was with them. And so, of course, through Moses' intercession, God then um, stays his hand and says, I will go up with you. My presence will remain with you. And really, when you think about um, the entire book of Exodus, you know, we tend to think of the parts that were in the movie um, you know, in the Ten Commandments, right? Just the, you know, the actual Exodus itself, the Red Sea, the giving of the law. I don't know. That's all as far as I ever got in the movie. I never watched beyond that, so I don't know what else is there. But you know, when we think of Exodus. That's kind of what we think about. But really, the whole, the main theme of Exodus is actually the construction of the tabernacle, and that's kind of the parts of the book that we kind of skip over because they're a little boring, less exciting than the beginning parts. But the building of the tabernacle is truly kind of at the center of the book of Exodus because it's the tabernacle that is kind of the culmination of this promise that God is going to be present in the nation of Israel. And they build this house for God, this tent for God, for his presence to dwell. And they all encamp around the tabernacle. So if you flip over to Exodus 40, the last chapter of the book of Exodus, in verse 34, we're told that then the cloud, that glory cloud of God, covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And that is you know, really kind of the, you know, the climactic moment of the book of Exodus. It's not the Ten Commandments being given on Mount Sinai or the Red Sea. Those are all you know, incredible, important moments, but it is the finished construction of the tabernacle and the presence of God dwelling in it. And it, it showed, even the fact that you know, the, the setup of the camp where all the Israelite tents around with God in the center, that this was a nation um, that was centered around the fact that God, the, the creator, Yahweh, the one true God, was their covenant Lord. Um, that's what made them unique among the nations. That really is what made Israel as a covenant nation unlike any other nation. And you know what? The, the fact of God's presence among Israel, it's significant for many, many reasons. One of those reasons is that it, uh, it points forward, has a forward-looking aspect to the real purpose of Israel's existence as a nation. So we talked about how Israel ultimately does not exist for its own sake. It exists as a vehicle for God to bring 
into the world, his blessing for all the nations. And that would get muddled through the course of Israel's history. They would forget that they existed for the sake that through them God was going to bring this blessing to the nations. But the, the presence of God among them reminded them of this. And it, it pointed forward to the fact that the that that promised blessing would come from them that right now god had a special dwelling place in the nation of israel but through israel through abraham's offspring god would have a special presence among all the nations that all the nations would enjoy the presence of god and that would come through christ who would come from the nation of israel and so in a in a real sense the the presence of God in the tabernacle and later the temple, that was kind of the first fruits of what was to come, the promise that God was going to bring all the nations to himself. And there is a sense in which this, the, the presence of God in Israel is a type that corresponds to the Holy Spirit dwelling in us because you know, what does the New Testament say about the Holy Spirit? That he is the uh, the down payment of our inheritance. He's the guarantee of the fullness of the blessings that we have. That yes, the Holy Spirit enters into us and he regenerates and recreates our hearts. But ultimately, our destiny is a full recreation, a full resurrection where we are, you know, not just born again with a new spirit and a new heart, but we are, you know, uh, restored uh, completely in our entire being. And so there is a sense where, yes, the Holy Spirit right now, he dwells within us. But in that, we have the promise that we are going to be completely renewed and we are going to dwell intimately with God. In a similar way, God dwelling in Israel kind of carried the promise that one day God was going to dwell among all the nations through Israel. Does that make sense? So that's one uh, very important highlight that we get in the Mosaic Covenant. That presence of God is really brought into much sharper focus. And also because for the first time now, there is this physical manifestation of God with us that you have when Israel is made into a nation. So that's the one major emphasis and focus that we get in the Mosaic Covenant. And the other one, of course, is the law. You can't talk about Moses without talking about the law. And, I mean, this is so much the case in the New Testament. You know, when Moses is referred to generically, you know, essentially that's just used synonymous with the law. Even in in, uh, John's gospel, in the prologue, he says, the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so the, the law really is the main focus the main emphasis, I should say, of the Mosaic Covenant. And oftentimes it's this emphasis that kind of gives a lot of people the misconception that you sort of have Moses, law, harsh on the one side, and you kind of have that over against Abraham and promise and blessing on the other side, when in reality, that's that, there's not that dichotomy. In reality, you know, like I said, like I've been stressing, Moses flows out of Abraham, and yes, there's a stronger emphasis on the law in Moses than there was with Abraham, but both elements are still there uh, in both Abraham and Moses, grace and law, grace and works. And there's a, 
Like I mentioned earlier as well, the real reason, the occasion for this emphasis on the law is that the people of Abraham, his offspring, are being made into a nation. And so that requires a giving of the law. You can't have a nation if you don't have uh, a law over that nation. And so that's why in Moses, when Israel becomes a nation, you have this uh, major emphasis on the law. And so a lot of elements come out because of this emphasis. So for one thing, the law teaches how uh, teaches individual covenant members how they are to behave. Remember, you have um, the command given to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. That's a call for Abraham and his offspring to live according to God's universal creation law, or what we would call the moral law, which is inscribed on the consciences of all of his image bearers. And what the law of Moses does is it defines what it means to walk before God and be blameless by transcribing that universal creation law that we have in our conscience by taking that and actually physically, literally writing and spelling it out. That's what the the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God is. It is a transcription of God's law uh, of God's law for all people that our consciences are all designed to testify to. Um, and again, this is essential because up until this point, the the blessings of the land, especially, was kind of this far off promise for the descendants of Abraham. But now that that promise has become a reality right in front of them, they're getting ready to actually enter and inherit that land. Dwelling in the land, remaining in the land, depends on their obedience. And so it's essential that that, what God expects is actually spelled out explicitly uh, in the written law. Does that make sense? So the, 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 the giving of the law, the law of Moses, it transcribes, Uh, or translates rather, what a life oriented towards God looks like. And it does this by spelling out very plainly what are our obligations to God and what are our obligations to uh, our neighbors. That is uh, the one level of the giving of the law. So it teaches individual members of the covenant how they are to walk before God and be blameless. It defines what that means. And remember, again, just by way of, you know, uh, of, of reminding that all creatures are required to obey the law, not just the people who are in covenant with God, but it's the old covenant people who are truly blessed to actually have the law physically written, like uh, Paul says in Romans, that the Jews are blessed because they have the actual written law and not just their consciences that bear witness to it. Um, and again, they are rewarded for their obedience to the law in a way that no other people group was rewarded. So that's the one element. The law is given to teach the covenant members how they are to obey God, to walk before him and to be blameless. And that very same moral law that was to govern over individuals is then explicitly applied and made the foundation for the civil government over the nation of Israel. So again, you have this reality of 
this ethnic group becoming a nation. And so there has to be a charter. There has to be a law. You cannot have a nation if you don't have a broadly applicable law to govern that nation. And so we also get in Moses the case law system. Uh, you know, if you look at Exodus, I mean, you don't have to turn there, but, you know, Exodus just kind of immediately following the Ten Commandments versus or chapters like 21 to 23, you have all these random laws, you know, if your ox gores a person, this is the penalty for that. And that's not just this, you know, sort of kind of weird, random collection of, of laws that the people were to obey. All that is, is the application of God's moral law, his creation law, to the civil sphere. It's taking God's principles for all people at all times, you shall not kill, and then applying that saying, okay, so in your governing, uh, if, if somebody is killed, try to discern, was it an accident or was it premeditated? If it was an accident, this is the penalty. If this was actual premeditated murder, then this is the penalty. You shall not commit adultery. If somebody commits adultery, if there's fornication, if somebody is raped, this is how you're supposed to deal with it in the civil context. That's what the case law is. It is an application of God's universal law in the social civil sphere. Um, and again, this is necessary for governing the people as a nation. And remember, we talk, when we talked about Noah, that civil government is, uh, is necessary and civil government is going to exist. When God made his covenant with Noah, he gave civil authority to man with the, the power of the sword to execute justice. And all civil authority is to execute justice in accord with God's universal moral creation law. Before this, before Israel, all rulers had was the testimony of their conscience. But regardless, every civil ruler from for all of time, is going to stand before God and give an answer for how they discharge their office in accord with God's law, whether they had the written law or whether it was their conscience bearing witness to it. Um, so what we have in Israel, as I mentioned, for the first time, God is directly establishing a civil government based on the explicit formulation of this universal law. And so what we get is not just a historical record of the nation of Israel, but we also get uh, an example of what a truly just, righteous nation in that time looks like, because they are explicitly governed by the law of God. Um, and and remember, the civil government is instituted by God as a as an institution to. Uh, to establish his common grace, to restrain evil, to promote good. It's God's law that is the means of restraining evil and promoting good. And so with Israel, we actually have an example of that. Uh, it's a model to all nations down through the ages, including today. Not that we, you know, just, you know, take it exactly as it is and drop it on any society, but that this is a nation in this time in history where God's law is rightly applied in the civil sphere, and that, that's what makes for a just, righteous nation. And if you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 4, you even get this intention articulated. Uh, so in addition to you know, promoting peace and justice in the nation of Israel, God says that uh, in 
Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8, or rather Moses says, See, I have taught you the statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this is a great this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So what Moses is saying is that this law, that yes, you are to live by individually, this law by which you are to govern societally, the nations ought to look at this people set apart to holiness and see the justice, the righteousness, the goodness of God's law applied to the civil sphere and ought to marvel at that and say to themselves, what a, you know, you know, what a God so just, what a people so wise and understanding to have such a, you know, a just, righteous rule. And so it's perfectly good and right for Israel as a nation to serve as a model of, you know, kind of a just, a just kingdom that applies those principles of righteousness. So you have individual keeping the covenant, foundation for the government of Israel as a nation. And then you also have in Moses the ceremonial law being expanded. So God gives the command of circumcision to Abraham. And then with Moses, all of this expands. And this category of law is what we call positive law. Remember, that's law that is in and of itself morally indifferent. Circumcision, dietary laws, um, you know, clothing laws, all of that, it, it is not inherently good or evil, but God commands it to his people. And so for that people at that time, these are necessary to be kept and it's sinful if they do not keep them, but they're not binding on all people at all times in every context. And so, remember, circumcision is given as the sign of the covenant. It threatens the the sanctions of the covenant that if you break the law, you are going to be cut off. This is a sign of being cut off from the blessing. But also, the covenant sign symbolizes the the blessings of the covenant. The great blessing of the Abrahamic covenant is that this would be a people set apart to holiness. This is going to be a holy people of God, unlike the other nations. And so for 400 years, the practice of circumcision on the offspring of Abraham was used to set them apart as individual members of the covenant. But now that all this people is about to become a nation, God adds to the positive law these sorts of public customs and rituals and uh, ways of living that is going to more visibly, more publicly set them apart as a nation that is very different from all the rest of the nations. And so that's why you have the dietary laws. That's why you have those laws that you can't sew uh, two different fabrics into a garment or that you can't sow your field with two different kinds of seeds and all the rest. It was the same principle of circumcision signifying that this people was separated from the rest of the world. This was a holy people. They were set apart to God. And so all of that, you know, if 
it's very easy to get bogged down when you're reading in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the ceremonial law. Just remember, principally, all of that is rooted in circumcision. It's all designed to show, as an example, this people is blessed to be holy to God, separated from the rest of the nations. So you have that element of the law being emphasized. And then uh, lastly, the emphasis of the law, and, and this is actually for us today, kind of the first thing we think about, we think about the way that the law is used. Um, in the old covenant, this is more kind of the last thing uh, that pops up, and it's still very important that this full, explicit, and complete articulation of the law, it testifies to God's covenant people their own inability to keep the law. Um, the, you know, we, we talk about how the law shows us that we're sinners and that's you know, very true. Now, oftentimes that's the only use of the law that we'll talk about um, rather than its other legitimate uses. But it is very important. Just one example, because it's all throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's writing. One example is Romans chapter seven, Verse 7, where Paul says, uh, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So, the, there is this reality that to the people of Israel, the fact that now no longer is it just the conscience bearing witness, because when it's only your conscience bearing witness, that's oftentimes a lot easier to overcome. It's a lot easier for us in our conscience to kind of rationalize our sin and say, well, I'm not really breaking the law. But when you have the written law standing right in front of you in black and white text, you shall not do this. It's a lot harder to get around that and to rationalize that. And so just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians that when Moses is read among the Jews still to this day, they're, they remain blind and that, you know, the, the tablets of stone, that law from without is there condemning them for their inability to keep it. And the law, once it was given in that explicit formulation, it always exposed the sinfulness, not just of all the nations around, but even of God's covenant people. And so consequently, um, it, it shows the it shows the people who are required to obey the law, the full law, if they are to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. It shows them that they are unable to do so. This people who to God God said to them, "Be holy, for I am holy." The law shows them that they can't be holy. Like Paul says in Galatians three, the law imprisons everything under sin. The law calls people to holiness, and it condemns people for their unholiness. And so as a result of that, the law, uh, it, it, it teaches that um, this covenant, the covenant with Abraham, expanded in Moses, it cannot make people righteous. This covenant is not sufficient it sets people apart as holy. Like I said last week, it calls people to holiness, but it does not make them holy. It, um, or it doesn't, it doesn't enable them to live out holiness. It, 
you know, calls people to righteous obedience, but it can't make you righteous. It cannot reconcile people to God. And so even the giving of the law to the old covenant people should have and did show them that even though they had this law, even though they were a holy nation and they were set apart and they were in the land and all the rest, the law, this covenant, it did not actually reconcile them to their creator. That constant presence of the law was uh, continually accusing the Israelites of their sin. It was testifying to their sinfulness. It made clear that even though they were called to holiness, they remained unholy and that they had not earned the right to come into the presence of God. But yes, maybe God was present with them. But even if you remember, God was present in the tabernacle and in the temple, but only once a year, one guy was able to actually go directly into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, after he had already made a sacrifice for his own sin. So the presence of the law, even though it called Israel to individual faithfulness and to civil obedience and all the rest of it, it still testified that they were not worthy to come into the presence of God. And as we close out, turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. It showed the people that they weren't actually made righteous. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4. We're told that since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you have this reality that nobody under the old covenant and by its terms I shouldn't say under the old covenant. Nobody, according to the terms of the old covenant, was, was made righteous. Because the old covenant is foundationally, even though God makes gracious promises, it is a covenant of works. Its object is the land of Canaan primarily and the preservation of Abraham's offspring. The old covenant is not intended to make anyone righteous, and therefore it does not make anyone righteous. But even on its own terms, if we look at the Old Covenant and the law where God is saying you must obey all of this law, and he says it throughout, we've read it in Deuteronomy, all of this law, if you are going to dwell in the land and receive all these blessings, you still have a problem because the covenant doesn't do anything to enable the people to obey the law. It doesn't give them a new heart or a new spirit. And the law is constantly testifying to their sinfulness and so what you have in the Old Covenant is one of the greatest and most significant graces of God. And that's that God established a means uh, by which the people could actually legally continue in the covenant. That's to say they could enjoy the blessings of the covenant even in spite of their sinfulness. And also an institution that would teach the people how they could truly be made right with God, and that is the sacrificial system. That's what God puts in there to enable the people, in spite of their sin, to dwell in the land, and it teaches them this is how someone is actually made right with God. And that's going to be what we talk about next week is the sacrificial system because that's a huge topic in Moses.
Are there any questions or comments that you guys have? All right, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glory of your word and the continuity of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would please just let this time be a time where our, our minds and our hearts and our eyes are more consistently open to the truth of your word, Lord, that you have given us the grace of your law, that you have you haven't left us merely to our own twisted, sinful, seared consciences, but you have given us your righteous statutes, and it is beautiful, and we do love it, Lord God. And we thank you that we are not judged based on our keeping of the law, but, Lord, we are judged based on the, the, the obedience of our covenant head, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I do thank you so much for your grace and your mercy Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love to us that you have seen fit to enter into relationship with us and to give us most intimately your presence, not in the fact that you dwell literally or visibly in the midst of us, but Lord, that your spirit actually dwells within us in the most intimate of ways, Lord, even as we look forward to that final state where we are face to face with our creator, our redeemer, our Lord and our God, in whose name we pray. Amen.